0: This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit Librivox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne At the Bay by Catherine Mansfield Chapter one Very early morning the sun was not yet risen, and the whole of Crescent Bay was hidden under a white sea mist. The big bush-covered hills at the back were smothered. You could not see where they ended, and the paddocks and bungalows begun. The sandy road was gone, and the paddocks and the bungalows the other side of it. There were no white dunes covered with reddish grass beyond them. There was nothing to mark which was beach, and where was the sea. A heavy dew had fallen. The grass was blue. Big drops hung on the bushes and just did not fall. The silvery, fluffy toy-toy was limp on its long stalks, and all the merry and the pinks in the bungalow gardens were bowed to the earth with wetness. Drenched were the cold fuchsias, round pearls of dew lay on the flat nasturtium leaves. It looked as though the sea had beaten up softly in the darkness, as though one immense wave had come rippling, rippling how far? Perhaps if you had waked up in the middle of the night, you might have seen a big fish flicking in at the window and gone again. Ha-ha! sounded the sleepy sea, and from the bush there came the sound of little streams flowing, quickly, lightly, slipping between the smooth stones, gushing into ferny basins and out again. And there was the splashing of big drops on large leaves, and something else. What was it? A faint stirring and shaking the snapping of a twig, and then such silence that it seemed someone was listening. Round the corner of Crescent Bay, between piled-up masses of broken rock, a flock of sheep came pattering. They were huddled together, a small, tossing, woolly mass, and their thin, stick-like legs trotted along quickly, as if the cold and the quiet had frightened them. Behind them an old sheep-dog, his soaking paws covered with sand, ran along with his nose to the ground, but carelessly, as if thinking of something else, and then, in the rocky gateway, the shepherd himself appeared. He was a lean, upright old man, in a frieze coat that was covered with a web of tiny drops, velvet trousers tied under the knee, and a wide awake with a folded blue handkerchief round the brim. One hand was crammed into his belt, the other grasped a beautifully smooth yellow stick, and as he walked, taking his time, he kept up a very soft light whistling, an airy, far-away fluting that sounded mournful and tender. The old dog cut an ancient caper or two and then drew up sharp, ashamed of his levity, and walked a few dignified paces by his master's side. The sheep ran forward in little pattering rushes. They began to bleat, and ghostly flocks and herds answered them from under the sea. Baaaaaaaaaaaa. For a time they seemed to be always on the same piece of ground. There ahead was stretched the sandy road with shallow puddles. The same soaking bushes showed on either side and the same shadowing palings. Then something immense came into view an enormous shock-haired giant, with his arms stretched out. It was the big gum-tree outside Mrs. Stubbs's shop, and as they passed by there was a strong whiff of eucalyptus. And now big spots of light gleamed in the mist. The shepherd stopped whistling, he rubbed his red nose and wet beard on his wet sleeve, and, screwing up his eyes, glanced in the direction of the sea. The sun was rising. It was marvellous how quickly the mist thinned, sped away, dissolved from the shallow plain, rolled up from the bush, and was gone, as if in a hurry to escape. Big twists and curls jostled and shouldered each other as the silvery beams broadened. The faraway sky, a bright pure blue, was reflected in the puddles, and the drops swimming along the telegraph poles flashed into points of light. Now the leaping, glittering sea was so bright it made one's eyes ache to look at it. The shepherd drew a pipe, the bowl as small as an acorn, out of his breast pocket, fumbled for a chunk of speckled tobacco, pared off a few shavings and stuffed the bowl. He was a grave, fine-looking old man. As he lit up and the blue smoke wreathed his head, the dog, watching, looked proud of him. Ba ba, The sheep spread out into a fan. They were just clear of the summer colony before the first sleeper turned over and lifted a drowsy head. Their cry sounded in the dreams of little children who lifted their arms to drag down to cuddle the darling little woolly lambs asleep. Then the first inhabitant appeared. It was the Burnells' Cat Florrie, sitting on the gatepost, far too early as usual, looking for their milk girl. When she saw the old sheepdog, she sprung up quickly, arched her back, drew in her tabby head, and seemed to give a little fastidious shiver. Ah, what a coarse, revolting creature, said Florrie. But the old sheepdog, not looking up, waggled past, flinging out his legs from side to side, Only one of his ears twitched to prove that he saw and thought her a silly young female. The breeze of morning lifted in the bush, and the smell of leaves and wet black earth mingled with the sharp smell of the sea. Myriads of birds were singing. A goldfinch flew over the shepherd's head, and, perching on the tip-top of a spray, it turned to the sun, ruffling its small breast feathers, and now they had passed the fisherman's hut past the charred-looking little wall where Leela the milk girl lived with her old gran. The sheep strayed over a yellow swamp and wagged the sheep dog, padded after, rounded them up, and headed them for the steeper, narrower, rocky pass that led out of Crescent Bay and towards Daylight Cove. Bah! Bah! faint the cry came as they rocked along the fast-drying road. The shepherd put away his pipe, dropping it into his breast pocket, so that the little bowl hung over, and straight away the soft, airy whistling begun again. Wag ran out along a ledge of rock, after something that smelled, and ran back again, disgusted. Then, pushing, nudging, hurrying, the sheep rounded the bend, and the shepherd followed after, out of sight. End of chapter one. CHAPTER TWO A few moments later the back door of one of the bungalows opened, and a figure in a broad striped bathing suit flung down the paddock, cleared the stile, rushed through the tussock grass into the hollow, staggered up the little sandy hillock, and raced for dear life over the big porous stones, over the cold, wet pebbles, onto the hard sand that gleamed like oil. Splish, splosh, splish, splosh, The water bubbled round his legs as Stanley Burnell waded out exulting. First man in as usual, he'd beaten them all again, and he swooped down to south his head and neck. Hail, brother, all hail, thou mighty one, a velvety bass voice came booming over the water. Great Scott, damnation take it. Stanley lifted up to see a dark head bobbing far out and an arm lifted. It was Jonathan Trout, there before him. "'Glorious morning,' sung the voice. "'Yes, very fine,' said Stanley briefly. "'Why the Dickens didn't the fellow stick to his part of the sea? Why should he become barging over to this exact spot?' Stanley gave a kick, a lunge, and struck out. Swimming overarm. But Jonathan was a match for him. Up he came, his black hair sleek on his forehead, his short beard sleek. "'I had an extraordinary dream last night,' he shouted. "'What was the matter with the man?' This mania for conversation irritated Stanley beyond words. And it was always the same, always some piffle about a dream he'd had, or some cranky idea he'd got hold of, or some rot he'd been reading. Stanley turned over on his back and kicked with his legs till he was a living water spout. But even then, I dreamed I was hanging over a a terrifically high cliff shouting to someone below. You would be, thought Stanley. He could stick no more of it. He stopped splashing. Look here, trout, he said, I'm in rather a hurry this morning. You're what? Jonathan was so surprised, or pretended to be, that he sunk under the water, then reappeared again blowing. All I mean is, said Stanley, "'I've no time to... to... to fool about. "'I want to get this over. I'm in a hurry. "'I've work to do this morning, see?' "'Jonathan was gone before Stanley had finished. "'Pass, friend,' said the bass voice gently, "'and he slid away through the water with scarcely a ripple. "'But curse the fellow. He'd ruined Stanley's bath. "'What an unpractical idiot the man was!' "'Stanley struck out to sea again.' and then, as quickly swam in again, and away he rushed, up the beach, he felt cheated. Jonathan stayed a little longer in the water. He floated, gently moving his hands like fins, and letting the sea rock his long, skinny body. It was curious, but in spite of everything he was fond of Stanley Burnell. True, he had a fendish desire to tease him sometimes, to poke fun at him, but at bottom, he was sorry for the fellow. There was something pathetic in his determination to make a job of everything. You couldn't help feeling he'd be caught out one day, and then what an almighty cropper he'd come. At that moment, an immense wave lifted Jonathan, rode past him, and broke along the beach with a joyful sound. What a beauty! And now there came another. That was the way to live, carelessly recklessly, spending oneself. He got onto his feet and began to wade towards the shore, pressing his toes into the firm, wrinkled sand. To take things easy, not to fight against the ebb and flow of life, but to give way to it. That was what was needed. It was this tension that was all wrong. To live, to live, and the perfect morning, so fresh and fair, basking in the light as though laughing at its own beauty, seemed to whisper, why not? But now he was out of the water. Jonathan turned blue with cold. He ached all over. It was as though someone was wringing the blood out of him, and stalking up the beach, shivering, all his muscles tight, he too felt his bathe was spoiled. He'd stayed in too long. End of chapter two. CHAPTER THREE Beryl was alone in the living room when Stanley appeared. Wearing a blue serge suit, a stiff collar, and a spotted tie, he looked almost uncannily clean and brushed. He was going to town for the day. Dropping into his chair, he pulled out his watch and put it beside his plate. "'I've just got twenty-five minutes,' he said. "'You might go and see if porridge is ready, Beryl.' "'Mother's just gone for it,' said Beryl. She sat down at the table and poured out his tea. "'Thanks.' Stanley took a sip. "'Hello,' he said in an astonished voice. "'You've forgotten the sugar.' "'Oh, sorry.' But even then Beryl didn't help him. She pushed the basin across. What did this mean? As Stanley helped himself, his blue eyes widened. They seemed to quiver, He shot a quick glance at his sister-in-law and leaned back. "'Nothing wrong, is there?' he asked carelessly, fingering his collar. Beryl's head was bent. She turned her plate in her fingers. "'Nothing,' said her light voice. Then she too looked up and smiled at Stanley. "'Why should there be?' "'Oh, oh, no reason at all, as far as I know. "'I thought you seemed rather... At that moment the door opened, and the three little girls appeared, each carrying a porridge plate. They were dressed alike in blue jerseys and knickers. Their brown legs were bare, and each had her hair plaited and pinned up in what was called a horse's tail. Behind them came Mrs. Fairfield with the tray. Carefully, children, she warned, but they were taking the very greatest care. They loved being allowed to carry things, Have you said good morning to your father? Yes, Grandma. They settled themselves on the bench opposite Stanley and Beryl. Good morning, Stanley. Old Mrs. Fairfield gave him his plate. Morning, Mother. How's the boy? Splendid. He only woke up once last night. What a perfect morning. The old woman paused, her hand on the loaf of bread, to gaze out of the open door into the garden. The sea sounded. Through the wide-open window streamed the sun onto the yellow varnished walls and bare floor. Everything on the table flashed and glittered. In the middle there was an old salad bowl filled with yellow and red nasturtiums. She smiled, and a look of deep content shone in her eyes. "'You might cut me a slice of that bread, mother,' said Stanley. "'I've only twelve and a half minutes before the coach passes. Has anyone given my shoes to the servant girl?' "'Yes, they're ready for you,' Mrs. Fairfield was quite unruffled. "'Oh, Keziah, why are you such a messy child?' cried Beryl despairingly. "'Me, Aunt Beryl?' Keziah stared at her. "'What had she done now? "'She had only dug a river down the middle of her porridge, "'filled it, and was eating the banks away. "'But she did that every single morning, "'and no one had said a word up till now.' Why can't you eat your food properly, like Isabel and Lottie? How unfair grown-ups are. But Lottie always makes a floating island, don't you, Lottie? I don't, said Isabel smartly. I just sprinkle mine with sugar and put on the milk and finish it. Only babies play with their food. Stanley pushed back his chair and got up. Would you get me those shoes, mother? And Beryl, if you've finished, I wish you'd cut down to the gate and stop the coach.' "'Run into your mother, Isabel, and ask her where my bowler hat's been put. "'Wait a minute. "'Have you children been playing with my stick?' "'No, father.' "'But I put it here,' Stanley began to bluster. "'I remember distinctly putting it in this corner. "'Now, who's had it? "'There's no time to lose. "'Look sharp. "'The stick's got to be found.' "'Even Alice, the servant girl, was drawn into the chase. "'You haven't been using it to poke the kitchen fire with by any chance?' stanley dashed into the bedroom where linda was lying most extraordinary thing i can't keep a single possession to myself they've made away with my stick now stick dear what stick linda's vagueness on these occasions could not be real stanley decided would nobody sympathize with him coach coach stanley beryl's voice cried from the gate stanley waved his arm to linda no time to say good-bye he cried and he meant that as punishment to her. He snatched his bowler hat, dashed out of the house, and swung down the garden path. Yes, the coach was there waiting, and Beryl, leaning over the open gate, was laughing up at somebody or other, just as if nothing had happened. The heartlessness of women. The way they took it for granted, it was your job to slave away for them while they didn't even take the trouble to see that your walking stick wasn't lost. "'Kelly trailed his whip across the horses. Goodbye, Stanley,' called Beryl, sweetly and gaily. "'It was easy enough to say goodbye, "'And there she stood, idle, shading her eyes with her hand. "'The worst of it was Stanley had to shout goodbye too, "'for the sake of appearances. "'Then he saw her turn, give a little skip, "'and run back to the house. "'She was glad to be rid of him. "'Yes, she was thankful. "'Into the living room she ran and called.' ''He's gone!'' Linda cried from her room. ''Beryl, has Stanley gone?'' Old Mrs. Fairfield appeared, carrying the boy in his little flannel coatie. ''Gone! Gone!'' Oh, the relief, the difference it made to have the man out of the house. Their very voices were changed as they called to one another. They sounded warm and loving, and as if they shared a secret. Beryl went over to the table. "'Have another cup of tea, mother. It's still hot.' She wanted somehow to celebrate the fact that they could do what they liked now. There was no man to deserve them. The whole perfect day was theirs. "'No, thank you, child,' said old Mrs. Fairfield. But the way, at that moment, she tossed the boy up and said, "A goose, goose, gaga!" to him meant that she felt the same. The little girls ran into the paddocks like chickens let out of a coop. Even Alice, the servant girl, washing up the dishes in the kitchen, caught the infection and used the precious tank water in a perfectly reckless fashion. Oh, these men, she said, and she plunged the teapot into the bowl and held it under the water, even after it had stopped bubbling, as if it too was a man and drowning was too good for them. End of chapter 3 CHAPTER FOUR Wait for me, Isabel. Keziah, wait for me. There was poor little Lottie left behind again, because she found it so fearfully hard to get over the stile by herself. When she stood on the first step, her knees began to wobble. She grasped the post. Then you had to put one leg over. But which leg? She never could decide. And when she did finally put one leg over, with a sort of a stamp of despair, then the feeling was awful. She was half in the paddock still and half in the tussock grass. She clenched the post desperately and lifted up her voice. Wait for me! No, don't you wait for her, Keziah, said Isabel. She's such a little silly. She's always making a fuss. Come on, and she tugged Keziah's jersey. You can use my bucket if you come with me she said kindly. "'It's bigger than yours.' But Keziah couldn't leave Lottie all by herself. She ran back to her. By this time Lottie was very red in the face and breathing heavily. "'Here, put your other foot over,' said Keziah. "'Where?' Lottie looked down at Keziah, as if from a mountain height. "'Here, where my hand is,' Keziah patted the place. "'Oh, there, do you mean?' Lottie gave a deep sigh and put the second foot over. "'Now sort of turn round and sit down and slide,' said Keziah. "'But there's nothing to sit down on, Keziah,' said Lottie. "'She managed it at last, and once it was over she shook herself and began to beam. "'I'm getting better at climbing over soils, aren't I, Keziah?' "'Lottie's was a very hopeful nature. "'The pink and the blue sunbonnet followed Isabel's bright red sunbonnet "'up that sliding, slipping hill.' At the top they paused to decide where to go, and to have a good stare at who was there already. Seen from behind, standing against the skyline, gesticulating largely with their spades, they looked like minute puzzled explorers. The whole family of Samuel Josephs was there already with their lady help, who sat on a camp stool and kept order with a whistle that she wore tied round her neck, and a small cane— with which she directed operations. The Samuel Josephs never played by themselves or managed their own game. If they did, it ended in the boys pouring water down the girls' necks, or the girls trying to put little black crabs into the boys' pockets. So Mrs. Samuel Josephs and the poor lady help drew up what she called a program every morning to keep them abused and out of mischief. It was all competitions, all races, all round games. Everything began with a piercing blast of the lady-help's whistle and ended with another. There were even prizes, large rather dirty parcels which the lady-help, with her sour little smile, drew out of a bulging string kit. The Samuel Josephs fought fearfully for the prizes and cheated and pinched one another's arms. They were all expert pinchers. The only time the Bunnell children ever played with them, Keziah had got a prize and when she undid three bits of paper, she found a very small rusty button hook. She couldn't understand why they made such a fuss. But they never played with the Samuel Josephs, now or even went to their parties. The Samuel Josephs were always giving children's parties at the bay, and there was always the same food. A big wash-hand basin, of very brown fruit salad, buns cut into four, and a wash-hand jug, Full of something the lady helped called lemondeer, and you went away in the evening with half the frill torn off your frock or something spilled all down the front of your openwork pinafore, leaving the Samuel Josephs leaping like savages on their lawn. No, they were too awful on the other side of the beach, close down to the water, two little boys, their knickers rolled up, twinkled like spiders. One was digging, the other patted in and out of the water, filling a small bucket. They were the Trout Boys, Pip and Rags. But Pip was so busy digging, and Rags was so busy helping, that they didn't see their little cousins until they were quite close. "'Look,' said Pip. "'Look what I've discovered.' And he showed them an old, wet, squash-looking boot. The three girls stared. "'Whatever are you going to do with it?' asked Keziah. Keep it, of course. Pip was very scornful. It's a fine sea. Yes, I saw that. All the same. There's a lot of things buried in the sand, explained Pip. They get chucked up from the wrecks. Treasure? Why, you might find. But why does Rags have to keep on pouring water in? asked Lottie. Oh, that's to moisten it, said Pip, to make the work a bit easier. Keep it up, Rags and a good little rags ran up and down, pouring in the water that turned brown like cocoa. "'Here, shall I show you what I found yesterday?' said Pip mysteriously, and he stuck his spade into the sand. "'Promise not to tell.' "'They promised. So cross my heart, straight dinkum.' The little girl said it. Pip took something out of his pocket, rubbed it a long time on the front of his jersey, then breathed on it and rubbed it again." Now turn round, he ordered. They turned round. All look the same way. Keep still now. And his hand opened. He held up to the light something that flashed, that winked, that was a most lovely green. It's an emerald, said Pip solemnly. Is it really, Pip? Even Isabel was impressed. The lovely green thing seemed to dance in Pip's fingers. Aunt Beryl had an emerald ring, but it was a very small one this one was as big as a star and far more beautiful. End of chapter four. Chapter five. As the morning lengthened, whole parties appeared over the sand hills and came down on the beach to bathe. It was understood that, that at eleven o'clock the women and children of the summer colony had the sea to themselves. First, the women undressed, pulled on their bathing dresses, and covered their heads in hideous caps like sponge bags. Then the children were unbuttoned. The beach was drawn with little heaps of clothes and shoes. The big summer hats, with stones on them to keep them from blowing away, looked like immense shells, It was strange that even the sea seemed to sound differently when all those leaping, laughing figures ran into the waves. Old Mrs. Fairfield, in a lilac cotton dress and a black hat tied under the chin, gathered her little brood and got them ready. The little trout boys whipped their shirts over their heads, and away the five sped, while their grandma sat with one hand in her knitting bag, ready to draw out the ball of wool when she was satisfied they were safely in. The firm, compact little girls were not half so brave as the tender, delicate-looking little boys. Pippin Rags, shivering, crouching down, slapping the water, never hesitated. But Isabel, who could swim twelve strokes, and Keziah, who could nearly swim eight, only followed on the strict understanding they were not to be splashed. As for Lottie, she didn't follow at all. She liked to be left to go in her own way, please." and that way was to sit down at the edge of the water, her legs straight, her knees pressed together, and to make vague motions with her arms, as if she expected to be wafted out to sea. But when a bigger wave than usual, an old whiskery one, came lolloping along in her direction, she scrambled to her feet with a face of horror and flew up the beach again. "'Here, mother. Keep those for me, will you?' Two rings and a thin gold chain were dropped into Mrs. Fairfield's lap. Yes, dear, but aren't you going to bathe here? No, Beryl drawled. She sounded vague. I'm undressing farther along. I'm going to bathe with Mrs. Harry Kemba. Very well, but Mrs. Fairfield's lips set. She disapproved of Mrs. Harry Kemba. Beryl knew it. Poor old mother, she smiled as she skimmed over the stones. Poor old mother! Oh, what a joy! What bliss it was to be young! You look very pleased, said Mrs. Harry Kemba. She sat hunched up on the stones, her arms round her knees, smoking. It's such a lovely day, said Beryl, smiling down at her. Oh, my dear! Mrs. Harry Kemba's voice sounded as though she knew better than that but her voice always sounded as though she knew something better about you than you did yourself. She was a long, strange-looking woman, with narrow hands and feet. Her face, too, was long and narrow and exhausted-looking. Even her fair curl fringe looked burnt out and withered. She was the only woman at the bay who smoked, and she smoked incessantly, keeping the cigarette between her lips while she talked, and only taking it out when the ash was so long you could not understand why it did not fall. When she was not playing bridge, she played bridge every day of her life. She spent her time lying in the full glare of the sun. She could stand any amount of it. She never had enough. All the same, it did not seem to warm her. Parched, withered, cold, she lay stretched on the stones like a piece of tossed-up driftwood. The women at the bay thought she was very, very fast. Her lack of vanity, her slang, the way she treated men as though she was one of them, and the fact that she didn't care twopence about her house and called the servant girl Gladys, Gladice, was disgraceful. Standing on the veranda steps, Mrs. Kemba would call in her indifferent, tired voice, "'I say, Gladice, you might—' HEAVE ME A HANDKERCHIEF IF I'VE GOT ONE, WILL YOU? AND GLAD EYES, A RED BOW IN HER HAIR INSTEAD OF A CAP AND WHITE SHOES, CAME RUNNING WITH AN IMPUDENT SMILE. IT WAS AN ABSOLUTE SCANDAL. TRUE, SHE HAD NO CHILDREN, AND HER HUSBAND. HERE THE VOICES WERE ALSO RAISED. THEY BECAME FERVENT. HOW CAN HE HAVE MARRIED HER? HOW CAN HE? HOW CAN HE? IT MUST HAVE BEEN MONEY of course, but even then. Mrs. Kemba's husband was at least ten years younger than she was, and so incredibly handsome that he looked like a mask or a most perfect illustration in an American novel rather than a man. Black hair, dark blue eyes, red lips, a slow sleepy smile, a fine tennis player, a perfect dancer, and with all a mystery— Harry Kemba was like a man walking in his sleep. Men couldn't stand him. They couldn't get a word out of the chap. He ignored his wife, just as she ignored him. How did he live? Of course, there were stories, but such stories. They simply couldn't be told. The women he'd been seen with, the places he'd been seen in. But nothing was ever certain, nothing definite. Some of the women at the bay privately thought he'd commit a murder one day. Yes, even while they talked to Mrs. Kemba and took in the awful concoction she was wearing, they saw her, stretched as she lay on the beach, but cold, bloody, and still with a cigarette stuck in the corner of her mouth. Mrs. Kemba rose, yawned, unsnapped her belt buckle, and tugged at the tape of her blower's and Beryl stepped out of her skirt and shed her jersey, and stood up in her short white petticoat, and her camisole with ribbon bows on the shoulders. "'Mercy on us,' said Mrs. Harry Kemba. "'What a beauty you are!' "'Don't,' said Beryl softly, but drawing off one stocking and then the other, she felt a little beauty. "'My dear, why not?' said Mrs. Harry Kemba, stamping on her own petticoat. Really, her underclothes? A pair of blue cotton knickers and a linen bodice that reminded one somehow of a pillowcase. And you don't wear stays, do you? She touched Beryl's waist, and Beryl sprung away with a small affected cry. Then, never, she said firmly. Lucky little creature, sighed Mrs. Kemba, unfastening her own. Beryl turned her back and began the complicated movements of someone who is trying to take off her clothes and to pull on her bathing dress all at the one and the same time. "'Oh, my dear, don't mind me,' said Mrs. Harry Kemba. "'Why be shy? I shan't eat you. I shan't be shocked like those other ninnies.' And she gave her strange, neighing laugh and grimaced at the other women. But Beryl was shy. She never undressed in front of anybody.' Was that silly? Mrs. Harry Kemba made her feel it was silly, even something to be ashamed of. Why be shy, indeed? She glanced quickly at her friend standing so boldly in her torn chemise and lighting a fresh cigarette, and a quick, bold, evil feeling started up in her breast. Laughing recklessly, she drew on the limp, sandy feeling bathing dress that was not quite dry and fastened the twisted buttons. That's better, said Mrs. Harry Kemba. They began to go down the beach together. Really, it's a sin for you to wear clothes, my dear. Somebody's got to tell you some day. The water was quite warm. It was the marvellous transparent blue, flecked with silver. But the sand at the bottom looked gold. When you kicked with your toes there rose a little puff of gold dust. Now the waves just reached her breast. Beryl stood, her arms outstretched, gazing out, and as each wave came, she gave the slightest little jump, so that it seemed it was the wave which lifted her so gently. "'I believe in pretty girls having good time,' said Mrs. Harry Kemba. "'Why not? Don't you make a mistake, my dear. Enjoy yourself.' And suddenly she turned turtle, disappeared, and swam away quickly, quickly like a rat." Then she flicked round and began swimming back. She was going to say something else. Beryl felt that she was being poisoned by this cold woman. But she longed to hear. But oh, how strange, how horrible. As Mrs. Harry Kember came up close, she looked, in her black waterproof bathing cap, with her sleepy face lifted above the water, just her chin touching like, a horrible caricature of her husband. End of chapter five. Chapter six. In a steamer chair under a manuka tree that grew in the middle of the front grass patch, Linda Burnell dreamed the morning away. She did nothing. She looked up at the dark, close dry leaves of the manuka at the chinks of blue between and now and again a tiny yellowish flower dropped on her. Pretty, yes. If you held one of those flowers on the palm of your hand and looked at it closely, it was an exquisite small thing. Each pale yellow petal shone as if each was the careful work of a loving hand. The tiny tongue in the centre gave it the shape of a bell, and when you turned it over, the outside was a deep bronze colour. But as soon as they flowered, they fell and were scattered. You brushed them off your frock as you talked, the horrid little things got caught in one's hair. Why? Then flower it all. Who takes the trouble, or the joy, to make all these things that are wasted, wasted? It was uncanny. On the grass beside her, lying between two pillows, was the boy. Sound asleep he lay his head turned away from his mother. His fine dark hair looked more like a shadow than like real hair, but his ear was a bright, deep coral. Linda clasped her hands above her head and crossed her feet. It was very pleasant to know that all these bungalows were empty, that everybody was down on the beach, out of sight, out of hearing. She had the garden to herself. She was alone. Dazzling white the picatees shone— the golden-eyed marigold glittered, the nasturtiums wreathed the poles, in green and gold flame. If only one had time to look at these flowers long enough, time to get over the sense of novelty and strangeness, time to know them. But as soon as one paused to part the petals, to discover the underside of the leaf, along came life, and one was swept away. And lying in her cane chair. "'Linda felt so light. "'She felt like a leaf. "'Along came life, like a wind, "'and she was seized and shaken. "'She had to go. "'Oh, dear! "'Would it always be so? "'Was there no escape? "'Now she sat on the veranda of their Tasmanian home, "'leaning against her father's knee, "'and he promised, "'as soon as you and I are old enough, Linny, "'we'll cut off somewhere. "'We'll escape. Two boys together.' I have a fancy I'd like to sail up a river in China. Linda saw that river, very wide, covered with little rafts and boats. She saw the yellow hats of the boatmen, and she heard their high, thin voices as they called. Yes, Papa. But just then a very broad young man with bright ginger hair walked slowly past their house, and slowly, solemnly even, uncovered, Linda's father pulled her ear teasingly, in the way he had. "'Linny's beau,' he whispered. "'Oh, Papa, fancy being married to Stanley Burnell.' Well, she was married to him, and what was more, she loved him. Not the Stanley whom everyone saw, not the everyday one, but a timid, sensitive, innocent Stanley who knelt down every night to say his prayers, and who longed to be good. Stanley was simple— if he believed in people as he believed in her for instance it was with his whole heart he could not be disloyal he could not tell a lie and how terribly he suffered if he thought anyone she was not being dead straight dead sincere with him this is too subtle for me he flung out the words but his open quivering distraught look was like the look of a trapped beast but the trouble was here Linda felt almost inclined to laugh, though heaven knows it was no laughing matter, she saw her Stanley so seldom. There were glimpses, moments, breathing spaces of calm, but all the rest of the time it was like living in a house that couldn't be cured of the habit of catching on fire on a ship that got wrecked every day, and it was always Stanley who was in the thick of the danger. Her whole time was spent in rescuing him and restoring him, and calming him down, and listening to his story, and what was left of her time was spent in the dread of having children. Linda frowned. She sat up quickly in her steamer chair and clasped her ankles. Yes, that was her real grudge against life. That was what she could not understand. That was the question she asked and asked, and listened in vain for the answer, it was all very well to say it was the common lot of women to bear children. It wasn't true. She, for one, could prove that wrong. She was broken, made weak, her courage was gone, through childbearing, and what made it doubly hard to bear was she did not love her children. It was useless pretending. Even if she had had the strength, she never would have nursed and played with the little girls. No, It was as though a cold breath had chilled her through and through on each of those awful journeys. She had no warmth left to give them. As to the boy, well, thank heaven Mother had taken him. He was Mother's, or Beryl's, or anybody's, who wanted him. She had hardly held him in her arms. She was so indifferent about him that as he lay there, Linda glanced down. The boy had turned over He lay facing her, and he was no longer asleep. His dark blue baby eyes were open. He looked as though he was peeping at his mother, and suddenly, his face dimpled, it broke into a wide, toothless smile. A perfect beam, no less. I'm here, that happy smile seemed to say. Why don't you like me? There was something so quaint, so unexpected, about that smile that Linda smiled herself. But she checked herself and said to the boy coldly, "'I don't like babies.' "'Don't like babies?' The boy couldn't believe her. "'Don't like me?' He waved his arms foolishly at his mother. Linda dropped off the chair onto the grass. "'Why do you keep on smiling?' she said severely. "'If you knew what I was thinking about, you wouldn't.' But he only squeezed up his eyes slyly and rolled his head on the pillow HE DIDN'T BELIEVE A WORD, SHE SAID. WE KNOW ALL ABOUT THAT, SMILED THE BOY. LINDA WAS SO ASTONISHED AT THE CONFIDENCE OF THIS LITTLE CREATURE. AH, NO, BE SINCERE. THAT WAS NOT WHAT SHE FELT. IT WAS SOMETHING FAR DIFFERENT. IT WAS SOMETHING SO NEW. SO, THE TEARS DANCED IN HER EYES. SHE BREATHED IN A SMALL WHISPER TO THE BOY. HELLO, MY FUNNY. BUT BY NOW THE BOY HAD FORGOTTEN HIS MOTHER. He was serious again. Something pink, something soft, waved in front of him. He made a grab at it, and it immediately disappeared. But when he lay back, another, like the first, appeared. This time he determined to catch it. He made a tremendous effort and rolled right over. End of chapter 6